This episode of My Therapy is brought to you by Dickie's Firewood Sales. Okay, coming at you with a bit of a different episode today. Uh, we have four voices in the room, me and Luke, um, my wife Caitlin, and our good friend Michelle Sparling. Thanks everybody for coming in. Uh, I guess a uh, bit of a, I don't know, round table. We'll see how this goes. I, I thought this would be a cool idea, and I guess uh, how this plays out now, and, uh, and the listeners will decide whether this is a good idea or not. Uh, so, how's everybody doing? Good. Oh, am I supposed to start? That's because I'm the co-host. I have to go second? Sure. That's right. Oh, good. Caitlin's getting sassy. <laughs> That's good. It's sassy. important. Yeah. I think sassy. you need to be sassed. Yeah, Justin needs a good amount. Yeah. Well, she's sassy. sassing you, but anyway. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I need it too, according to my wife. So you're, doing, so. <laughs> you're doing good. That's the official word? Yes. You're good? Okay. Good. I'm good. Yeah, no issue on my side. Good. Happy to be here. I already said She went first. Good. You said so, you were good? Yeah. Okay, you just, you just... Hijack the whole I did. thing. Okay. That's what I do. That's my role here when I'm on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, and you know, I'm doing good. Uh you know, to be completely Since nobody honest. Asked. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah, I I am doing good today and that hasn't been the case recently. So I actually, you know, it's it's good to good to feel good sometimes. Anyway, um yeah, thought we'd bring everybody together and just talk about some random things. What were you going to say? Are we just going to skip over the fact that it was just your birthday on Friday? Well, there's a whole timeline thing that we get into. <laughs> I skipped over it. <laughs> um, well, you can edit this out then. No, we're not going to edit anything. <laughs> uh, it, we, Yeah, this is coming out several... Let's weeks. get into the timeline. That worked <laughs> great last... T- no. Um. <laughs> this comes out several weeks after my birthday, but thanks for mentioning it. Yeah. Uh, for so. everybody's knowledge, Justin's birthday is on March 22nd. And he is 32 years old. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm starting old to feel man. a little ancient in the room here is all I have to say. <laughs> okay, you done? Yeah, I'm done. All right. Hi, Jack. Um, over for now. Okay, so let's sour the mood a little bit here. Um, yeah, first thing I wanted to bring up was uh, the events um, happening in, in Parkland, Florida. Um, in the past week, uh, there was there was one 19-year-old just I'll get to that. Uh, there was one 19-year-old uh, girl who uh, took her own life. Uh, she was a survivor of of the massacre at the high school down there. And uh, just today, as we're recording this, I guess it might have been last night. Uh, there's a second one. Yeah, it, it broke this morning. A uh, second uh, individual took their own life. Another survivor, um, obviously highlighting the uh, the issue of uh, what am I trying to say? Survivor guilt. Um, it's a, it's a terrible thing. Uh, something that I wanted to discuss was something that uh, Michael Landsberg brought up on Twitter. Uh, basically, I should bring up the tweet, but his his idea was that um, people, like it's the idea that people say, oh, you know, what do you have to be um, upset about or something along those lines. And I think that uh, it, it kind of goes deeper than that. That's that's my take on it. Is that um, you know it's so it's so internal that you like I don't know how I personally would would deal with that the the aftermath of yeah I'm still here but 
Yeah. Well, you, you can know. imagine the trauma that somebody yeah. went through, whether you were there as your witness, whether you have you know, lost people, even if you weren't there, the, the trauma on you, both physically and mentally, is significant. So then to turn around and you know, being able to live with that, that, that would be huge. You yeah. know? And you hope that there's been some support for them. Mm-hmm. But you know, if somebody's saying, no, I'm fine, you know, and everything looks okay, as we know on surface, then I can only imagine what that would have been like for the families and the uh, friends. No, I had read this morning that one of the girls was trying to attend college and she wasn't she wasn't able to attend her classes because she was just so afraid, like that PTSD that she suffered from. You know, I've I've known people who have been threatened, um, you know, in their jobs, like working in convenience stores or wherever um, and have had people come in and, and hold a gun to them and nothing happened. And but they're they still suffer from that and can't work jobs like that where they work alone. So I should preface this with, you know, I think the world of Michael Landsberg, and I think that he's doing a whole lot of good. And not to say that this tweet didn't, you know, did any serious harm, but I just thought it odd. Um, he said, I don't know the details of the Parkland shooting survivor, Sidney Alios suicide. But I do know how the world makes people feel mental illness and good luck feel. That's where, what to do, what do you have to be depressed about comes from. Um, I'm not even sure that that's the 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 root of it. I don't think the root of it is the the suggestion that you shouldn't be upset. I just think it's it's a really difficult thing to deal with. I'm not sure that necessarily outside factors have anything to do with it. I, yeah, I can't see that. I mean, I think that you know, for some situations, especially where you've had that level of trauma that has been put upon you, it's about even understanding how to support somebody like that. Like, mm. how do you even begin as you know the friends and family? Right. There's th- sorry, Luke. I think this is also different. Parkland specifically is different than any other shootings, any other uh, of trauma that these kids would have had to go to because of what they've had to endure since then. Not, not even talking about the any anything triggering their memories, any like, anything that have what they've had to go through the abuse that they've had to take mm-hmm. from low lifes and and degenerates who who th- say they're faking who say they're yeah all the all kinds of nasty things you could possibly say about these kids that it didn't happen that, that they it didn't act- happen at that all they were that, they're actors. A- that they're crisis yeah. actors that like yeah. the the unbelievable nonsense that these kids have had to deal with on top of having survived a terrible school shooting it's I, 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 there are times when I can't believe this is the first time we've had to talk about this, honestly, because, because you're talking about kids, you're talking about kids who've gone through something terrible and are, are in a fragile state and the strength of many of them, uh, has been remarkable. And unfortunately, this is also the side of it that we have to see sometimes. And I, I'm I'm a little shocked it's taken how long has it been since Parkland? A little over I a think year, it's right? A year? Yeah. 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 A year in February, yeah. But but it also there is a sense of it that makes sense because we're at the year and everybody starts talking it about again and it brings yeah. it back up for these kids. And when we t- when it's talked about again, it brings up the memories and it brings out the the scum. And yeah. you also had the, I mean, the shooting in New Zealand last yeah. week too, exactly. which is also you know a reminder that's still there. up the memories. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I didn't think of that. Um, and the other thing, the thing that shocked me this morning was when I heard that the uh, the second person had taken their life was the idea of contagion and 
that one person did it and, you know, another person's feeling the same way and, you know, it almost gives them license to say, you know what, she did it, so I, I will too. And I don't know what we, not necessarily we in this room, but we as a society and, and you know, government in this United States and whoever takes care of the healthcare system, what they do to provide the supports that these people need to make sure that doesn't happen again. I don't, I don't know. I, I'm at a loss for what, how do we prevent, how do we make sure that the rest of the people that have been involved in this know that that's maybe not necessary, that you can get through this and, you know, you need, you need these community supports, but I don't know what those, I don't know what the community supports are that help somebody through that. I, I, I'm a little bit at a loss like you are. I, I think that when you have something like this, you have kids that stand up and they fight back and you see that there's. Parkland kids that are very front and center still to this day but you also have ones that don't want to they just want to forget and they don't want to be publicized they don't want they don't want to be reminded of it but they're forced to by people some with good intentions most with bad intentions and and I don't know how you stop that because in the world that these kids grew up in and the world that they live in, technology is omnipresent and it is a part of their lives, whether honestly, whether they want it to or not. And, and I don't know how you can protect and insulate these kids when you have platforms uh, that refuse to do anything about the abuse that these kids are suffering because it's not, I don't know, it's not hate speech or it's not, it doesn't rise to certain levels and... Yeah. when I, I I don't think that we as com- I think we as community can do the best that we can but I think ultimately it requires change at a much greater level than than you or I are able to implement and that's it really the scary is part. a society change you know and that that perspective of you know doing the right thing and being empathetic you know and the very nature of what we're seeing in you know in the US and other parts of the world in terms of that level of you know the hate the the attacking the cyberbullying and the other bullying that goes on you know that unless we start changing how we respond to that you know that will continue to amplify these types of situations where you really end up having to ensure that there's a integrated support around these youth and your anybody on an ongoing basis and therefore, you know, becomes a cost issue, becomes a policy issue and who's willing to put their hand up and say, yeah, we're prepared to do that, you know. And so, so for some of these people, you know, who've gone through this, they don't have that means of even financial support to be able to get what they need in care, you know. And I've never seen anything that said that there has been that ongoing support for these youth. Yeah. If it, I, all I've seen, and maybe I'm just ignorant to the entire story, but I've seen uh, one person died, and now a second person has died, and it's like, that's so bad. Like, sure, feel bad about it. But I haven't seen anybody saying, "What do we do about this?" And mm-hmm. I feel like it's it's a it's a it's a as unfortunate as it is, it's it's a good opportunity to have an international conversation on how do we, what do we do to support people that are suicidal? And I I haven't seen that at all. I think that that's a problem. Well, I think on those ones, I mean, even, you know, we look at, you know, taking it over to Canada for a second in terms of having suicidal, um, suicide prevention plans, you know, we don't have that 
in Canada. We have, you know, the announcement of the new, um, or not the new, but for more funding for the National Suicide uh, Distress Line and the texting and the, um, say, chat. But we don't have anything that says we have a plan. You know, and every country should have one that says, you know, when these things happen or when somebody needs, you know, support, how do we stop that from happening so that we're going upstream? They're putting all the things in place that hopefully people don't get to crisis, you know, mm-hmm. and that's what's got to be done here is that, you know, that supports there. Almost like it's like a triage right from the beginning. What do we need to put in place as a program to ensure that, you know, youth mm-hmm. who have gone through this don't get to that state of crisis? Mm-hmm. And, um Michelle, I'm so glad you're here because uh, <laughs> you are one of, if not the most knowledgeable and informed and hands and everything person that I know in this space, <laughs> that, that I know personally. Well, thank you. Um, can, for our listeners, you were, it's, uh, it, this marks uh, a year less a day since you were last on the podcast. Um, so one of our only repeat guests. So uh, <laughs> thank again, you, thank, thanks for coming in. Uh, can you can you tell our listeners a little bit about like the what you're involved in currently? Oh my gosh. Um, okay, so what I'm involved in currently, I am I'm involved with the Canadian Mental Health Association in Halton um, as a board member and as an advocate. Um, I'm actually, as of this week, I am finishing up my seven years on the board of Parents for Children's Mental Health. So yeah. you're just kicking you out? I uh, know, they're kicking me out, yeah. <laughs> no. I know, I know. They're, I still get to stay connected to them, but I'm actually not on the board anymore, which uh, which is okay because it allows me to get into other things, you know, because I can't sit quietly. Um, the other piece that I'm involved in, as I actually just got uh, appointed to the uh, Family Advisory um, Committee for FRAME, and FRAME is a um, national and a global knowledge uh, base where it allows for exchange of information to create a u- integrated youth uh, mental health system. So there's global partners and as well as uh, say national partners to be able to try to share information and data so that we can change up youth mental health around the world. So that's very exciting. I, li- I love that part. I'm also involved in Project Zero at Trillium Health Partners, which mm-hmm. the focus is on, you know, within the next 10 years within Peel Region, um, having zero uh, suicide. And for that, we have a what we call it a family and youth uh, league, which is the advisory committee, and I actually co-chair that um, as trying to build that forward to make sure that the family's voice and the youth voice is helping to inform all the decisions that take place in terms of making this change. Um, obviously, my Shine Out Shout Out tournament, um, which we run in September, and the uh, Just Be You program that comes from that, and also the... Uh, M174, which is the motion that Charlie Angus, who's the NDP MP, has put forward to try to get a national suicide prevention plan in Canada. You know, and that's going to the House on uh, again on April 8th. That's exciting. Uh, let's start there, because uh, I see a lot about this uh, national suicide prevention plan. Mm-hmm. Um, what does something like that look like? Something like that looks like having both a federal and provincial um, connection in terms of right now we have, because health is part of the uh, provincial responsibility, that and the dollars you know come from federal, and we see with the Health Canada Act, the transfer of dollars that come down, there's no 
connection and uh, integration between all those parties to have a more concerted effort in terms of uh, suicide. So what this would mean is you have representation of the provinces and the federal government to get together to talk about what do we need to do as a nation in order to start looking at suicide prevention in terms of you know what things need to be in place provincially, what need, things need to be in place nationally, what policies do we need to have, what type of funding do we need to have. So you're really looking at how do we put programs in place that allow that to happen and that the focus is on it's a public health issue it's on the public health of the nation you know so that we reduce the numbers so that those 4,000 plus that die every year in Canada you know that at some point we never get to that stage where we actually have much less than that. Is there a template from which they're working uh based on another country that's doing this? Or is this this kind of pioneering something? No, we are the only uh, G7 country that does not have a national suicide plan, which is very telling, you know, when we start looking at that. Um, So there are a lot of templates out there of what we can be using, um, but we just have not ever gotten there. Back in 2000, I think it was 11 or 12, there was a outline of a plan put together, but they decided that they would just create a, I would say, a, a, an idea of it and never put the funding behind it. And then it just sort of fell off to the side. We're saying, well, here's some thoughts and policies. The Mental Health Commission of Canada has some information around that, but it was more suggestion-based rather than actually having an official idea from Canada. Is, is this a matter of simple economics and priorities, or is there pushback on an idea like this? I'm just I'm surprised it doesn't already exist. I feel like who would politically would ever want to say, nah, I'm not for that? Well, that's the interesting piece on that, you know, because it really truly is a nonpartisan issue, you know, and we don't understand. Yeah. You know, there's some, I think, you know, when we were there in February listening to it being presented in the House um, when the motion first got presented, and the conversations that came from some of the other parties, there was very much support for those who were in the House, but there was a lack of understanding and a lack of education around mental health and mental illness and around suicide. And you could hear it in their choice of words. They were very proud about you know, the fact that all this money's been given to the provinces. When you look at the, what the government has put forward, the $1.9 billion plus, plus, plus over the last uh, you know, several years, but they talk about, you know, Mental Health Commission of Canada, they talk about working with the partners, but nobody talks about that's not good enough. Like they're more proud about what the little things they did rather than having a concerted effort. So there's a lot of education, in my view, that still needs to be done to make them understand truly what this is. Yeah, to be honest, I'm shocked to hear that we're the only G7 country that doesn't have this. When you think of, you know, we're Canada, we're so far advanced. We're supposed to be better than everybody else. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Honestly, that's kind of how I feel about it, that we have one of the best countries in the world, not that we're perfect by any stretch, but I just look at everybody else and I'm kind of like, I'm kind of, I'm glad I live in Canada. Well, but not, something like this is just crazy that it doesn't exist. And yeah. not only that, but we tout our, like I know we all, you know, kind of internally say, yeah, our healthcare system has some problems, but as a country, we do put our healthcare system forward and say, we've got a great healthcare system, but to hear that our country doesn't have this plan in place mm. does show you the disparity between physical health and mental health and how it's considered by government in our country. Absolutely, especially when you look at, I mean, when we did the presentation back in February, we did a press conference and we had youth there from some of the First Nations and these uh, yeah, young people were you know, 19, 20 years old and to hear their stories of what they've been living with 
um, and living for over the last seven to eight years just trying to get changes. It was phenomenal, you know, that I can't imagine being at that age and having that level of experience and knowledge and insight, you know, at that age to make a, try to make a change. And I'm thinking, when I was 19 years old, this was the last thing that was in my mind, you know, but this is very much part of their life. Mm-hmm. And they recognize that this is a need. You know, I'm thinking, if they recognize it, what's wrong with those who are leading this country? And it mm. doesn't make sense. No. I don't think we have time to list all the things. Oh, sorry. We're not doing it's that. True. Okay. You have an unlimited amount of time. Oh, <laughs> that's true. you true. ruined my joke, but thanks. Yeah. <laughs> um, just as someone who's on the periphery or not in it at all, I'm curious to know, what is your sense of the uptake on this right now? And is it something that we're going to get sooner than later? Or do we have a long way to go? The challenge that we have is the limited time until an election's called, right. you know, and that's the problem that we will face. So, if but it's not an opportunity for somebody to say, to latch on to it and say we need this and make it a real campaign issue. Part of their platform. Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And you would think that would be there, but we're. I mean, clearly, not everybody has their platforms out there yet as to what that will look like. But it is an ideal opportunity to step forward because there's so many voices in this area. They're saying this is such a need. You know, and I don't, I am hoping, you know, we know the NDP will, but we don't know, you yeah. know, with the other parties. It's, um, to, to get a little bit more into the political side of it, uh, before the, before the provincial election in Ontario, the Wynn government, their final budget, they just came out and promised everything. They promised everything to everybody. Uh, it was last ditch effort because they were in, they were in a lot of trouble as far as the election goes. Obviously they lost the election. Didn't go well. Did not go well. <laughs> no, not at all. And so this, the federal budget that just came out, uh, like this week as we're recording this, because the Trudeau government has a couple scandals going and, and they're, they might be in trouble. They're certainly not in as much trouble as the Wynn government was, but they, they might be in trouble. Everybody kind of expected that they would do more than they did. Their budget mm. was so meh. That's the best way to describe it. They didn't, they didn't like that. Something like, like this would have been the perfect opportunity. Whether or not they would have followed through on it is, is another conversation entirely. But the point is they could have done this. They could have done so much more. They could have promised so many more things and they didn't. They put out just such a blah budget that it was, I, I don't know. I can't believe they didn't take the opportunity to do something like this, but as you said, it's a nonpartisan issue, but unfortunately, everything is partisan uh, in our current political climate. We just, this past week, as we're recording this, went through a 30-hour voting session in which the Conservative Party MPs voted against everything, yeah. literally everything. I don't have the list in front of me. People tweeted it out when it happened, but the list of things they voted against is abhorrent, some of the things that they voted against, simply because... Uh, it's a liberal It's a liberal idea. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, ev- unfortunately, everything is a partisan issue well, based on who puts it forward. It seems more and more, I don't want to get too into the weeds and the politics off topic, but... Well, no, I, I think this is on topic, right? Because we're talking about why this isn't happening. Yeah, and and yeah. I think that's why, that's why it isn't. Don't, again, I am not an expert, but everything I'm seeing out of the conservatives is straight out of the Trump Republican playbook. Like, they saw yeah. that, that worked. Let's, let's, let's do that. This is so divided in the United States right now, but it's working or worked to get the Republicans elected. You play on people's anger. That is the strongest emotion when it comes to how people will react. And uh, as someone who has to deal with people who call me all the time <laughs> mm-hmm. to talk about political things and even non-political things, it's, it's nobody ever calls me happy. Everybody calls me 
angry. And for context, you screen calls. I screen for calls. Radio station, yeah, right? for a radio yeah. station. So, like, again, this is more like we were. This happened just before we recorded this. Uh, on Friday was the sentencing of the uh, truck driver in the Humboldt bus mm-hmm. crash. Really tough situation, mm-hmm. yeah. all told. A lot of people very conflicted that's, as to as to how to deal with this. There's a lot of it's it's one that's hard for me because mm-hmm. it's this is not a cut and dried thing. It's yeah. I don't want to get too much into what my personal feelings on his sentence and 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 whatnot. But when I got a call from a guy who wanted to talk about it. He said to me, well, I think he should be hanged. And then I was like, Ooh, okay, that's what? And then he went, no, you know what? That's too good for him. He should be cut into pieces. Huh. What? Wow. And, that, wow. and that's... And that's why you screen calls. And that, yeah. Well, that's why I screen <laughs> calls, because he's never getting on the air. Yeah. But, but that's, that's the kind of thing. Like, that's, it's that, that, that level of anger you wouldn't think exists in someone. Because this is... You're talking about someone who lives in, our, in the 900 CHML listening area, which is not that large, so Hamilton... So not really connected to Saskatchewan. I, I, if it was a family member saying this, I still would disagree, but at least you understand kind of where they're coming from, that the, the, the hurt that's within them. This is someone completely unconnected, but has so much anger towards this person that they want them. They don't just want them dead. They want them dead in a painful manner. Yeah. yeah. They, want them to torch, they want them tortured and to suffer. And maybe some of that is the anonymity of, I don't know who this dude is when he's calling yeah. me. You know, he's, be, everybody's yeah. a big man when, when it's want. not face to face. But that's that, bringing it back around, that is what the current political climate is. And that's what the, that's what conservative parties are preying on. I have a lot of family and people that I grew up with and people that I still know who are conservatives and they have their reasons for being conservatives. I like to think they're good people, but they get swept up because for whatever reason, political parties on the right nowadays are feeding into the anger rather than just focusing on the issues that make them conservative, if that makes sense. Well, so it's so divisive. You know, Mm -hmm. all you have to do, whether you're on any of the social media and whether you looked at the, you know, Humboldt uh, um, story, you know, and the comments underneath or whether it's even to do with, uh, you know, Parkland or anything, you look at the comments underneath and where they start going very quickly, you know, where people are being seen as weak, people are being seen as snowflakes, people are being seen as, you know, I not one of insult. us, you know, <laughs> and they just go on and on this list. And I'm thinking, but how do you do that? How, you know, and it is that fear, as you said, and it's that anger. And it's like, well, they're taking away from us. And I think, but what are they taking away from? You know, you're jumping on the bandwagon, you're becoming mob mentality. And all it's doing is kind of such a deep divide mm-hmm. among yeah. all of us that it's hard to fathom. Like, I just find even emotionally, I read some of these things and I have to stop because it, yeah, it yeah. takes too much out of it. It is. I just prefer not to go into the comments. Yeah. Well, I mean, stay away from it altogether. <laughs> I've, I've been able to stay away from the comments, but you don't get away from it. Like, they're in Dundas, uh, I don't know, probably two months ago now. There was a group that put up these posters. They're called ID Canada. And they... I could tell right their posters didn't say anything. They just said something about like protect Canada. They weren't overtly racist. Uh, But you could tell there was something up because they put them on bus shelters and telephone poles and there was an inordinate amount of staples in the telephone poles and they were completely glued over on the bus shelters. So they weren't like taped up. So they were really hard to get down. Uh, I tried. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 
<laughs> and and when you go to this group's website, they talk about how they want to protect Canada for bring it back to its European values uh, from the immigrants that are coming over. And and uh, we talked about them on the radio. The, their ears were burning. They listened. They started tweeting at us that we wouldn't talk to them, which we're not going to talk to racists. That's just how it goes. Uh, and with people like that, they're so focused on this hatred of the other yeah. that yeah. you can't you can't get through to them. Something as simple as uh, this is something that matters strongly to me, even as I sit here as a as a white man. Uh, that immigration is something that matters so much to me because I'm two generations removed from immigrants. Mm-hmm. That when my grandparents came over, they weren't they weren't the other, they weren't hated, but they came over with next to nothing after the war because there was nothing left for them in the Netherlands and they had to come. And so that's what these people are that are coming yeah. over. They're just coming from countries that look a little different than us. Yeah. But if you look 50 years ago, if you look 100 years ago, and you went to people there and said, what do you think about the influx of Irish immigrants? Yeah. What about Italian immigrants? Say, you like I the influx of Italian exactly. immigrants? I'm three generations removed Irish on my and mother's side. So there like, was, yeah, it's, there was a, it's all of us. There was a hatred for Irish and Italian oh, immigrants at one point in Canada's history. Yeah. And now we're talking to these groups who are... Are talking about European values and probably count people of Irish heritage and Italian heritage among their members and do not see the irony whatsoever <laughs> in that. Yeah, but that's that's the world that we live in now. Yeah. That yeah. ironically, we're closer than ever as a world. We're closer than the world is closer than it's ever been. Right, and somehow we're more divided. We're more divided, more divided than yeah. we've ever well, been. And it's interesting. I just finished reading Brene Brown's. Braving the Wilderness, and there was a concept that she spoke about in there, because she was commenting on the exact same thing, how we're closer than ever, but more divided than we've ever been. And it's really, you know, I think she was pondering the question around um, part of the cause being that it's so easy now to just surround yourself with like-minded people and to shut out anybody who you would normally, before the age of social media, um, you'd be able to have healthy debates with, and you'd be more in tune to listening to the si- somebody else's side of the story. And now we can so easily block people on Twitter and our, we've got algorithms on Facebook showing us what we like to see that you don't get that anymore. And people are so easily swept up by, you know, misinformation because they're not willing to hear the other side of it anymore. And it becomes a lot harder to get people out of their own mindset. But is it any different? I mean, in terms of only hearing one side, you know, yesterday's comment from our now premier, who talked about, you know, we don't need to have new journalists anymore because, you know, he can talk to people directly through social media. And when you look at that, you know, that's already saying, you know, that, you know, we don't need a free press. We don't need that check and balance on democracy. In that case, we're just bombarded by uh, propaganda. Exactly. There's no filter. Exactly. So, you know, at what point, I mean, those are the types of things that, you know, totalitarian states use, or dictatorships use, you know, in terms of that. And it's like, there's a reason for the press. It's a reason why even in the states, in their constitution, they have freedom of the press to allow that, you know, uh, sharing of information so that people can get both sides and to make informed choices. You know, and when we don't allow that to happen, you don't get the informed choices. Mm-hmm. You don't get that, you know, um, breadth of understanding, and you get that narrowness, which creates that divide. And I think, a, right. but I think a big problem with that is that um, 
the, there's this ideal of the press that it's this unbiased, uh, neutral monitor. Absolutely. And that just doesn't really exist anymore. No, absolutely. Uh, partly because you have to people you have to get people reading, you have to get people watching, you have to get people listening. And just spitting facts at them doesn't work. That's why I they appreciate don't not that it's perfect. I think I think you lump this in to it, but I, that's why I appreciate the CBC and that there is a commitment. I, I was definitely yeah. going to lump them into but there, it. But there is there, there's a commitment by our government to keep what is supposed to be an unbiased media, and I think that that's important. Right. And I and I think the problem the problem with the CBC is that. Uh, I don't think it has the extreme left bias that some people yell and scream about, yeah. but it, it definitely leans left. And and I think that is just partly because uh, the left governments tend to fund the CBC and the right governments tend to defund the CBC. Right. So, it, you know, wherever your bread is buttered, that's with the CIB or CIBC, CBC. It's that's it's the same as it's the same as like any any news network like you 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 cater to who's paying attention mm-hmm. um just with the cbc their funding doesn't come from advertisers it comes from comes from the government but that's that is the biggest problem i have with my industry is that there is no longer a an unbiased everybody has a slant and you have to try and balance out the voices instead of having yeah. a balanced yeah. voice yeah when did we all become commentators like that yeah. just baffles yeah. me. Like yeah. there's like where are the reporters that just report the facts? Like that should still exist. But to your point, you said it doesn't. Or the d- in depth reporters, you know, the ones who yeah. are truly doing, you know, investigative stories. Yeah. You're starting to see a little bit of that, you know, through different places where you see some of the journalists working together and more um, collaborative approaches. But we're doing news by sound bites. Yeah. You know, it's really what we're doing to catch yeah, what's somebody's gonna, attention. What's going to take off on Twitter, your 30-second well, clip or Yeah, because it's tweet. the readership or the viewership or the listenership or something that's going to also attract, you know, in terms of the advertising dollars. So you want to make sure that you're getting that audience to yeah. you, and that's what's happening. So people go, oh, that looks really good, and start watching it, you know, which is how you end up with things like a Fox News being such a, you know, yeah. big p- player for, you know, people of a certain ilk, you know, throughout different parts of the, of the world. And, you know, CBC, you know, there's a lot of good things about it. The one thing I like about CBC is because we have the Broadcast Act that says it has to represent the voices of Canada, you know, and we don't have a lot of places that still do that. And I think that's a value for us as a Canadian, you know, identity and as a culture to make sure that even small town Canada has representation. Mm-hmm. And I think if, if we lost that, that we lose a lot as a country. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, even though maybe it's flawed, I think it's still crucially important. Sure, I I, I would totally agree with that. I think that the, the the problem with what you're looking for in reporters is that the way that a lot of politicians handle themselves, and I think this really kind of started, or at least I started to notice it during Rob Ford's tenure as mayor in Toronto, because I was a journalism student at the time, and we did a lot of being in sc- at school in what Toronto. What a time to be a journalism student. Oh my goodness, it was a, what a time to be a journalism student in Toronto. Uh, because they gave us access to City Hall. Um, It it was that if you tried to point out the factual inaccuracies, if you tried to sit there and be an unbiased reporter, you came across as a biased reporter because you're having to sit there and say, you're lying, you're lying, you're lying. And I think that's what what is happening, especially now with the government of Ontario, uh, or anybody that has to cover the Conservative Party of Canada and the promises they're making in the lead up to this election, is that you constantly just have to say you're a liar, you're a liar, uh, and and 
And f- even though that's coming from a factual place, people see it as a biased place. A perfect example of that is Daniel Dale. I was just going to oh, bring him up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> One of my favorites. He is the perfect example. I think I, – I, I mean, listen, he's not a fan of Donald Trump. That much is very obvious. But I think he genuinely does a good job of just – giving the story yes but the story is that donald trump is lying and he's lying all the time and for some yeah. reason that's made out to be that he's leaning left he's right. just reporting what he's reporting he's telling the truth and that's and that's the problem is yeah. is that's even if down you the middle want to be a reporter you can't really be down the middle mm. it just or doesn't you're not ever going to be yeah. perceived you're not going to be perceived as it by the other yeah. side yeah. the people don't want to hear the facts if the facts don't fit their narrative. Yeah. Well, it means journalism's moved away from what it was really intended to be in terms of that. Yes, you said, you know, biased. You know, when you look at the journalistic principles, they're always there. You know, they're not being adhered to as much as we'd like them to be. Yeah. That's right. And it's because of the way that it's all been monetized that they have to do the sound bites to keep going. But that's not what they're supposed to do. They're not supposed to be there to entertain us. But that's what they no, become. No, but, but that's kind of the problem is not to sit here and defend the industry but the 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 problem is that as new things came along and there's new avenues for people to get their news Mm -hmm. and so they don't have to go to uh to global news which is my company anymore they can just because if they don't like what global saying they can declare us fake news and go somewhere else (laughs) exactly and go to uh uh, go to the rebel or or something the like rebel. that. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be right down the middle. But that's but that's what I mean is like they is is we get so many so many comments when I was still paying attention to the comments on our Facebook page. So many comments about us being pawns of the liberals or bought by the liberals or just for I don't know posting about the conservatives doing something wrong. Or even just posting about something that conservatives did, or posting about something the liberals it's did. Another thing that I'm finding, like, we were shills. I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to keep this going too much longer. But I find that if you're not Fox News, then you're a leftist. Mm-hmm. And like, even like I, I, I hear a lot about how Fox is on the right and CNN's on the left. I think that CNN is maybe left of center, but they are not all the way like Fox is like they're not parallels like those are not the same thing whatsoever there's an incredible irony every time my radio station gets called leftist propaganda because we have one center left host uh and three right hosts including one who is so far to the right <laughs> that it is it is scary like Every time we get called that, I just am like, are you li- what, what part of the day are you listening to? We have three hours of even remotely left-leaning programming, and the rest is the rest of our talk programming is right-leaning, mm-hmm. and but somehow we're leftist propaganda. Yeah. yeah, it's because people just hear what they want to hear. It's because you're not right. Yeah. Yes, is the problem. Yeah. Well, and then that ends up playing back to you, going back to the area of mental health. You know, that ends up playing into it because Thank people you. are hearing that <laughs> negative, you know, uh, sounds all around them, and it starts to get draining. It gets exhausting, you know, and you're sort of going, "I just need something positive. I need that positive news, that positive space, you know, those positive people around me." Because otherwise, it's this constant barrage at you, and at some yeah. point, you say, "You go, I can't do this anymore." You know, because it is, there's nothing good in the world because we're hearing it all the time. When Trump got elected, the first thing I would do every morning was check his Twitter account. What is this crazy person saying today? And that lasted maybe six months. And then I had to not do that anymore because it was so toxic. Like I just, it was bringing me down. 
He really was. Absolutely. Um, so back on the initial question, 25 minutes ago, whatever it was, <laughs> about uh, the the suicide, the National Suicide Prevention Plan. Um, do you think that somebody's going to cling to this as an election issue, or is it just going to fall by the wayside? Well, we're hoping, um, you know, at least uh, because it was brought forward by the NDP as a starting point that they will, you know, hold on to it and move it forward. I know, like I said, the Charlie Angus, um, who's out of uh, Timmins, you know, that is very much an issue for him. So I'm hoping that... The we'll other problem is that he's in Timmins. He's in Timmins, but he's got a very national presence. You see <laughs> right. him a lot he's, on CBC. Yeah, yeah. Char- Charlie's one of the most vocal okay. yeah. Good. MPPs. Good. Good. Or, he, he's uh, fabulous, that there is. you know, in terms of holding, you know, things accountable and people accountable. So I'm hoping that that will help inform that platform. I mean, all we can do is ask people to write to their MPs, you know, at this point and say, this is coming back again to the floor in April 8th. And, you know, please make sure that your MPs are there and that they're, you know, supporting this and that we get to, to a point where we're going to have a vote on it before that election comes down. That's excellent. So I was going to say we are kind of running out of time, yeah. like uh, platforms are being ironed out. And yeah, there's a short time frame here to try to squeeze that in somehow. No, absolutely. And yeah. that's, that'll be the worry, because if we don't get it now, then we're starting all over again you right. know, once the, right. the new government comes in, or the same government. Now, I'm wondering what sort of um, education platform there is out there, too, around getting people rallied around the cause, in the sense that, like, I didn't know that Canada is the only G7 country that doesn't have it, like, whether or not... The problem is, is who's going to who's going to fund the advertising campaign to create the awareness around that? Yeah, because the entities that that uh, support mental health in this country are a nonprofit, and there's only so much money to go around. Mm-hmm. Well, you, and that's you know, the challenge. You're, you're going to need a big donation from somebody to even, even consider doing that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. and that's, that's the challenge. I mean, right now it's a lot of, you know, individuals on social media, whether it is with uh, Charlie or whether, you know, our um, Voices for Mental Health Collective, you know, we're uh, pushing that out there in terms of trying to make people aware of it. You know, the individuals, you know, mental health advocates. And uh, what we do have, though, is the... the uh, Um, Canadian um, Indigenous Nursing Association, the Canadian Medical Association, the Canadian Nurses Association. So we do have larger organizations who are supporting this. But it's that individual voices, that small group voices or even the larger group voices. But as you said, it's not the advertising out to the everyday person to say, hey, did you know? Mm -hmm. And that's the piece that we're missing. That's not just missing on that plan that I find since I've been at the CMHA since January. It's been a few months now. Um the biggest problem that I see across the organization is I guess in my in my wheelhouse of how do we get more people learning and understand how do we reach more people just in general because I find you always hear there are no resources there's not enough of anything to support mental health in this country and then I hear about some of the programs that we're doing at CMHA Ontario, and they're at most branches across the province that reach almost everybody, and nobody knows about them. And I was like, there are resources. And I, I, the, the whole engagement and outreach problem is not, is not uh, only with the plan. It's, I think it's across the board of mental health. That for some reason... It seems like unless you're in this conversation like we are, you don't know about it. Oh, absolutely. You know, and when you have those conversations with people, that's exactly what you hear. I didn't know that CMHA had, you know, the bounce back program. I didn't know. I didn't know that till I started. Yeah, I know. And, you know, 
or even, you know, people didn't even know about Ride Don't Hide, you know, as their major fundraiser in June, or the, um, you know, Mental Health First Aid. You know, I go out and I do presentations in workplaces and within the community, and I talk about mental health first aid. No idea that it was even there. And you try to explain to people that it is something that CMHA offers, and it is something that, you know, you would use more likely every week than regular emergency first aid, you know, because of what it offers, and people have no idea. So is there a solution to that? I think there is more conversations that need to happen. But you really, as you said, until you, unless you're in the space, people are not looking for it because I, it's a scary thing. People don't understand it and not going to spend their time on it. And as, as a communications professional, I am genuinely at a loss because I think, what more can we be doing? And I think that uh, how my, uh, my director, Joe Kim, uh, kind of outlines how we approach things and how we, and the, the theory behind everything we do is I think it's bang on. I think that we... We do our best with what we have to create awareness around everything we're doing. Yep. And I just, I don't think it reaches enough people and I don't know what to do about it. Like, I, I feel like as someone who's been in communications for a number of years and has done it in a, in a number of different ways at in different industries, I should be able to bring some experience to this and say, hey, maybe this is like, do it in a new and a different way, create a campaign around it. And I'm just at a loss. Like, I, I have no new ideas to add to this. So is, is it really, I mean, about that, you know, where we start there, but or is it that we need to go back, you know, and make this part of the everyday conversation, yeah. everyday life experience? You know, I think of um, Brian Hansel when he talks about having almost a participation for mental health, you know, where we had youth and, you know, kids engaged in these conversations from a very early age. You know, we had all those ads when we were growing up about not smoking and, you know, the heart health and, you know, getting your exercise. And that continued all the way through, but it became part of the everyday life. So, you know, when you get to those moments, you go, oh, yeah, I know what to do. I know what's out there. Yeah. So it may be that. It may yeah. be part of it because we yeah. don't do that you know and i think that goes back to a lot of the programs and campaigns we're starting to see about having more integrated you know programs and things in place where we're getting back you know those coping and resiliency skills are looking at other things earlier on to raise the awareness at a much younger age so i guess it goes back to the question that i brought up around uh money who's going to pay for this campaign or the advertising that we do to to start that and carry it through the lifespan so people learn to understand throughout their life how to deal with their mental health issues. I don't know I don't know where that money comes from. Well, I think that goes back to having all the players, you know, working together, you know, and goes right. back to that conversation about, you know, what the federal and the provincial governments need to do to have a national plan. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and to that point, like I think that a lot of the like the not smoking thing is funded by the government. Yeah. So there's maybe there just Federal. needs to be more funding. Yeah, why why should this be any different? Yeah. And I also think, you know, when we look at all the – there are so many programs out there. There's a lot of grassroots. There's a lot of larger organizations all doing a lot of things. What not irks me, um, annoys me at times, though, is when I'm going out talking to people or organizations and they're going, oh, we're doing a study on this particular area. This is what we're doing. And then I talk to somebody else two weeks later and they're doing the exact same study. And I'm thinking – well, why aren't you guys talking to each other and sharing resources and doing more, you know, work and collaboration so that we're not having to spend, you know, duplication of dollars on that so that we actually are being able to take the dollars and use them much more effectively, you know, and I think there's, we still silo more than we should be. We are not looking at the comprehensive health, as you were saying, uh, Caitlin, in terms of the physical and mental, where we were saying that 
it's not just about the mental health. He's also looking at that physical piece where we're having somebody when they go in to get assessed for their mental health that we're doing that physical piece at the same time, you know, to see what else is there. But it's also the social determinants of health. You know, when people can't afford health care, when they don't have work to go to, they don't have a place to live. You know, so it's a bigger thing than just about, you know, I'm dealing with a mental illness or addiction issue. I can come in and get, you know, go to the um, emergency room, get the support I need, and then I'm going home. Well, actually, I'm not going home because I don't have a home mm-hmm. or I don't have a drug card in order to get the medications that I need. So next, you know, within two weeks, I'm right back where I was, which is adding to our cost. You know, there's a whole comprehensive thing that's needed here. But this is that's where yeah. that national mm-hmm. piece needs to come into play. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so um, let's get into uh, budget. So the, the federal budget just came out, and uh, hopefully by the time, hopefully we're going to squeeze this podcast in before the Ontario budget comes out. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious to know, uh, what, what do you see as the areas of need? Um, housing uh, definitely needs an area of need. Um, the health care. And the mental health, um, you know, the government had come through and it talks about it's $1.9 billion, you know, unprecedented that they're spending. That's over 10 years. You know, when I add to the government, uh, the federal government of 1.9, that's 3.8 over 10 years. And the reality is, you know, the previous government had actually talked about 4.1 over four years, you know, in terms of where we can do the dollars quickly, more effectively. I think that, you know, there needs to be more than that. But it's not just about the money. You know, they need to talk about more than that. They need to talk about looking at how that money's being spent and how the parties are working together. But they also need to look at having the voices of um, those who are living with mental health and addiction issues and the families as part of these conversations. And that's they're not really doing that in terms of doing the spend. They're more focused on how do we save the money at the back end, rather, or sorry, the front end, rather than dealing with the, making the changes at the back end. So all it's going to do is repeat the cycle. We're not going to get out of it until they put some money into clearing up the housing, dealing with the income issues, dealing with the uh, availability supports you know, within the community. So... I see that this investment does nothing. Well, it does something, but it just I don't think it does enough right. of what we need. Now, um, the, on the on the federal stuff, um, what did you see what their priority areas were? Was did they get in too much of a mental health on the federal budget? They had it for the uh, um, national uh, suicide uh, distress line okay. in terms of the putting another I think it was 25 million into okay. it. Over three years? Uh, I can't remember what the number was, okay. but I knew it was the $25 million. So it is continuing what's already there in terms of, you know, the what Bella's talk had put in place working with the Kids Helpline and having those national programs in place that people can call. Because there, the money prior to this was only a pilot, and so now this is putting some more comprehensive dollars behind it. Gotcha. But, you know, what? if you're asking me as a family member, you know, what I would like to see in the budget, I look at what we put together with Children's Mental Health Ontario. We gave information into the government of Ontario and said, here's some of the things that we see as families across this province. And it was expanding the availability of supports for families and ensuring that those supports are there, not just for the person dealing with the mental health, but for the families as well. Because we know, you know, going back to the conversation on Parkland, 
that it doesn't just impact those who have the um, mental illness. It affects the families as well, and there's not always the supports there for them, um, in particular the siblings. It's having um, increased resources in the schools. We need to have you know more um, resources where our children and youth are. You know, which are they go to school? We need to have more there, and yet at the same time, we're hearing that you know money's being taken away from the schools, mm-hmm. and mm. you know that there's cuts there, and some of the resources are being cut. You know, things like the three million dollars that was available for uh, youth who are dealing with dual diagnosis in order to get um, living supports and able to be able to find jobs, and that's been cut. Well, these are lifelines for some of these youth that are going in there. Um, things like having the system designed to meet the needs of the families through family engagement, really engaging them into that, having families as part of those voices, the availability of uh, services in the rural and the northern areas and in remote communities and recognizing programs that are culturally sensitive you know, and aware. We need to put fund there, and we're not really seeing that. You know, So there's a lot of things that need to be put in place, but... You know, whether or not we'll get there, I'm not holding my breath, but yeah. we have asked. I know uh, I don't bring a lot to the table in mental health discussion, but one of my areas of expertise is root cause, corrective action, and preventative action implementation. And when I hear these pieces around the federal budget, you know, putting a good amount of money into the the hotlines and that sort of thing, to me, when I hear that, that's a Band-Aid fix. That's Absolutely. not actually preventing anything. So you're throwing more money at... The crisis, which I would agree right now, we need that because we don't have enough preventative programs put in place to avoid people having to go to the crisis line. But Mm -hmm. at what point does the government really need to sit down and take a look at this from a holistic perspective to say what's driving people to the crisis line? Where can we put money that stops that from happening? Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, when I look at something like Project Zero, that's what I get excited about because that really is looking at that holistic approach, having all the right players at the table. We have people from healthcare, we have justice, we have community agencies, we have education, we have families, we have youth voices, um, and we have the scientists and researchers to be able to say, okay, we need to look at this just not at crisis stage. We need to be able to look back. You know, we need to go upstream and say, what do we need to do here so that we don't have people getting there? You know, hopefully at one point this will become the template you know, yeah. for, you know, a much longer, you know, picture. And it's a 10-year project. Yeah. Know? And that's the thing, tells you how much work we have to do. And that's just locally. That's just within Peel region. You know, so that there's a lot of work to be done. But that's right. I'm hopeful when I see things like that. No, I would agree. I mean, that sounds like the proper platform for getting at root cause and really looking at where a difference can be made. And I definitely agree. Doing that takes time. I don't think it's something that, you know, even in the next four years of term for a government, they can get 100% accomplished. But it's how do we, the people, influence the government to start looking at that and actually driving it. And this is the other thing is that sometimes we have a government push the needle forward. Um, You know, I'll just throw out sex ed in Ontario. And then the next government comes in and claws it back. And it's like, how do we keep our governments from doing that and and using those sorts of things as pawns. So that's, I think, where we need to demand more of our representatives. Well, and you also look at some of the programs that are being offered, you know, they go, oh, we'll have more telehealth, which is really good, Mm -hmm. you know, that people can have those things. But not everybody has equal access to, you know, internet or to um, be able to use computers or whatnot. Um, You know, and for some people, that's not going to help them in terms of their mental illness, you know. 
you can have pro- a lot of great programs in place out there that will help with somebody who's at a lower end of their mental health in terms of that level of acuity. But as it gets more complex, then those are the bigger problems. And I'm not seeing money being spent in those areas. I see a lot more at the lower end, mm-hmm. which is really worrisome because, you know, where we get into crisis more often are at people who have more levels of acuity in terms of their mental illness. And we're the conversations are never there. We never have conversations about, we talk a lot about, so let me try this, um, depression. We try a lot, talk a lot about anxiety because those are the things that are easy to talk about. But we have a lot of people who do deal with schizophrenia or deal with um, bipolar or her, you know, BPD and things like that. And so where are those conversations? Right. Because the seriousness of them and the more complexities of them, you know, cost a lot more effort and time for that person and for the community to help that person. We don't have those conversations because the other ones are nicer and easier to fix. They're not as gunky, right. you know, and I think we got to stop being looking just at the pretty, you know, to try and make it look like we're doing something and actually put in more concerted effort. And that worries me because there seems to be that, as you said, that quick fix, that yeah. Band-Aid, you know, let's make it look like, well, we've given money here, but in the end it doesn't do anything, especially for communities that don't have access. Mm-hmm. No, and I would argue, too, if you start looking at the more complex issues, um, you know, schizophrenia, bipolar, which are more difficult to treat, require more community support, you will fix the depression and anxiety as well, because they are, like you said, a little less complex. So if you can focus on what's, you know, most difficult to fix, everything else will also follow suit. So absolutely. Yeah. And it is putting money into the community agencies, right? Like, you know, it's, you know, they, they, they talk about putting, you know, ending hallway health. But mental illness is about, in addictions, is about dealing within the community as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and we should have more services available in the community that people can actually access it so we're not driving people to the hospital. Exactly. I would agree with that. I think that was one thing I was going to mention is that um, around that piece where people don't seem to know what support services are out there, I mean, people still have the thought of there's something wrong with me, the hospital's where I go, and how do we change people's perception that if I'm not feeling well mentally, this is where I go. Yeah, like CMHA Ontario, a lot of the branches have uh, resources um, Mm -hmm. at the branch that you don't necessarily need to go to the hospital. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of walk-in clinics across this province that people can go to, and they don't even realize that, Mm -hmm. you know, that they can go and walk in. It's free, you know, and they don't have to have that wait time. It may be a wait time to get more extensive services, but at least you have somebody who's doing that check-in with you and letting you know that you're going to be okay. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Michelle, I want to change gears a little bit um, to uh, something Lynn Keene we had on recently, and she brought up uh, Project Zero. Yep. And I, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Project Zero is an initiative that Trillium Health Partners uh, put in place. They started about almost uh, two years ago looking at this. And what it really is intended is to look at, across the Peel region, Uh, the rates of suicide that are um, happening and to try to figure out ways that we can actually reduce that down to zero. There's an initiative across the world called um, Zero Suicide, and it really is to try to get to that target because suicide is deemed as preventable, you know, and it is a health issue. So how do we put things in place? So Trillium Health Partners, the Trillium Foundation, and a number of other players have gotten together, led by Ian Don, a number of uh, people from the foundation, to put some significant dollars and resources forward to try to look at what we can do to put a plan in place to change that landscape. You know, and it is working with the communities to see where, you know, what does risk look like? You know, how do we deal with that before, I said, somebody gets to that level of crisis? So it's, it's, 
it's it's innovative. It's different. It's you know it's I would say in my view groundbreaking. Um, when I look across the almost 15 years that I've been in this field now, you know, as a mental health advocate, this is the first time that I can look at something and go, okay, this is exciting. This is everything I've been saying for the last 15 years that we need. Is zero a lofty goal? It is a lofty goal, but you've got to have a vision, right? You've got to start somewhere. You know, and you know why not have a lofty goal? Because it it is preventable. You know, is there a timeline? This one that focuses over ten years. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You got to shoot high, then you'll never stop working. Absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. Opens up everything. Yeah. Um, and uh, before we wrap up, I, I I want to learn more. I want you to tell people about uh, Shine Out, Shout Out, and Just Be You. Can you uh, explain uh, what Just Be You is and how Shine Out, Shout Out? Uh, facilitates that. Okay. Well, just, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> sorry. Um, just for you is a peer to peer social recreational program for youth ages 15 to 25. And what it does is provide a safe place for youth who are dealing with mental illness or who have identified themselves as having some mental health struggles, a place where they can go hang out without judgment, uh, without stigma, where they can be supported by other peers who have gone through very similar situations. They can say, yeah, me too. It helps them with building up their self-esteem and their self-confidence. What it be, has become, what we have found over the last few years that it's been running, is a place for youth who are waiting to get services to go to get support while they may be in the middle of getting services to have continued support and post-care also to get support. So it is making an impact on youth in terms of being able to move around their path to wellness. And um, this is a gra- grassroots organization that started out of a group of us uh, back in 2013 ran a hockey tournament to raise money for youth mental health. Part of the conversation we heard in that as we were building up to get ready for the hockey tournament was from families who said, my son, my daughter, my child doesn't have a safe place where they can go. You know, and especially for the, the older youth, the ones for the transition age youth, just to be able to have friends, to be able to feel connected, to feel safe. And so we started looking at that and thought, well, we're running our hockey tournament. You know, why would we not look at creating this type of program? So I met with our local mental health agencies, um, talked about putting this in place. We created a steering committee. And in 2014, just before Christmas, we launched Just Be You in Oakville. Um, we, it's been running almost four years now. We have between 20 to 30 youth who show up on a Friday night to hang out and to socialize. It's youth-led. We have a youth advisory who gives us direction. And our uh, Shine Out Shadow tournament actually fully funds it. So we have this one-day wow. tournament, which nice. is the day after Labor Day. And this year it's on September 7th back in Oakville. And it's an adult recreational hockey. And everything from that funds the program entirely. Exciting news is that we have uh, had conversations with uh, other communities in our region who want to take on a Just Be You program, which is wow. great. Wow. And we have a community down in uh, southern Ontario who also wants to take up a Just Be You program. So the evidence is showing it works. We hear from the youth that it's had a positive impact. We have youth talk about how they go to school more often, that they have friends for the first time, that they are able to have better relationships with their families, you know, that they're feeling better about themselves. So the uh, evidence is supporting this, and the evidence-based research that, that also supports that a peer-to-peer program is of benefit. Um, so we're really excited. Um, you know, as every time I talk to the youth, I get excited about you know what this has done. You know, just out of an idea that a bunch of hockey players had one you know 
day in May back in 2013. <laughs> uh, the other the other piece that's really exciting, not only do we have our tournament this year, which is the Shine Out Shoutout uh, tournament, we, we have a number of speakers that come that day. We have mental health agencies who do a lot of awareness uh, raising. And, of course, we always look for sponsors and you know, people who want to fund it. But the following weekend, um, we're actually going to be doing a mountain bike uh, weekend up at Tecosi Ranch in uh, just outside of Peterborough, where we are um, working with um, the fam- the people from Tecosi Ranch. It's about 200, or sorry, 200, uh, 600 uh, acres of uh, trails where you can mountain bike and wow. or um, hike. And, you know, it's to raise funds. So this is a new initiative for us this year. And we're quite excited about that because it'll be ourselves and actually Camp Trillium, who will be the two sources of uh, receive the funding from this event this year. So that's pretty exciting. You that know? sounds mm-hmm. amazing. And, and you, yeah. can stay over, you can stay over for the weekend or you can do a one day, you know, on it. Um, and it's all levels, you know, it's for families and for, you know, there's uh, Emily Batty, who's the uh, – um, Olympian for mountain biking. I think she's third in the world. She came the last two years. She's going to be there again this year. Amazing. You know, and the fact that we are actually one of the recipients this year is is pretty cool. You know, and uh, I went last year and biked for the first time. <laughs> it, it, actually, I, I did. I did okay. Um, you know, a few hills. I sort of look. Oh my gosh. You know, but uh, you know, like I said, the fact that they chose us as one of the recipients this year is is pretty cool. So cool. yeah. I want awesome. to do that. Yeah, me too. Yeah, okay. Well, I will send you the yes. details. I look forward to it. Um, anything else, guys? Is there anything else you wanted to touch on? Oh, March for uh, Mental Health uh, Toronto yes. is going to be held yeah. on May 26th, and we have a great lineup um, of speakers and uh, music and spoken word artists and uh, organizations uh, signing up to join us that day, or it's going to be at Queen's Park starting at noon. So we're inviting all uh, mental health organizations, mental health advocates, you know, and anybody who's interested in mental health and mental um, illness and addiction to come that day and be part of, you know, a uh, great we call it a march but it's really going to be a gathering we'll probably walk around queen's park you know but <laughs> it is an opportunity for people to get together and to show their support for mental health awesome um, good. yeah we'll be there too we'll be there too yeah. um <laughs> How can people find you? They want to reach out, ask questions, get in touch with you. Um, there's different ways. One is on um, Shine Out Shoutout on our website, which is www.shineshout.com. On Twitter, it's at uh, Shine Shout. And I also have a uh, information at shineshout.com. Awesome. Uh, thanks for You're thanks welcome. Yes, thank us. you so welcome. much. Kate, thanks, thanks for contributing. No problem. Uh, you, you carried it there for a bit. Yep. That's uh, great. Appreciate it. Uh, get me on social media at J-D-I-C-K-I-E or send me a message on Facebook Messenger. Get me on Twitter at the Elvermeer, T-H-E-L-V-E-R-M-E-E-R. Like, rate, review, subscribe, share this podcast. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Awesome. Bye. Thank you. Bye.